The term snowflake isn't exactly a term of endearment. Well, certainly not the way it's been used by an older generation as a sort of derogatory term to describe a generation less stoic, less principled, less foundation-led than the generation that they believe they're from. But I actually thought maybe snowflakes should somehow be reappropriated to be a bit more complimentary. And it was around that time, about two and a half years ago, I chanced upon an article in the New York Times and an academic by the name of Ulrich Baer had just written a piece around snowflakes and what that generation had got right. He went on to write a book, What Snowflakes Get Right, Free Speech and Truth on Campus. And Uli Bear, who is this week's rocket fuel guest, goes on to reappropriate the term snowflake, making out that actually, by being less principled, more flexible, this generation are actually more understanding. And snowflake could mean more than just a bad term. In fact, could it ever be worn as a badge of honour? I think that might be one step too far. But I think in this conversation in this week's Rocket Fuel, you'll find out that actually a generation that are at university now do have a lot more going for them than some people would say as far as their belief system and their kind of interests are concerned. Hello. I'm James Erskine. I'm the presenter of the Rocket Fuel podcast and I work at Rocket, the youth content and youth marketing business. We spend our entire lives trying to better understand, trying to better engage youth audiences. And that's why these conversations in this series of podcasts have been fascinating, borderline essential to us. All I would say is if you think you know anybody else that would get something from this week's chat, be sure to share the podcast with them. But in the meantime... Have a listen to this week's Rocket Fuel with Uli Bear as we get to know a bit about his background, a bit about his work. He's a professor at New York University as well as an author. And then we ask Uli Bear for his Rocket Fuel. So Uli Bear, teacher, writer, translator, thinker, author, thank you so much for doing this week's Rocket Fuel. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So I'm aware that some of our listeners may not know the work that you do, Lee. Um, why don't you bring to life your journey and how you've ended up, um, if you like, with your most recent work that came out last year, What Snowflakes Get Right, a text about free speech. We're going to really drill down into that. But before we do, tell us about your journey. So my journey on, on the surface is uh, I was born in West Berlin, West Germany, when there was wall around it. So I grew up in a divided city surrounded by the Soviet empire. I left in uh, high school and went to high school for a year in America, in Philadelphia. And then I went back to Germany for a bit to finish high school again in Germany, but I really wanted to live in California in face the Pacific. I had this really strong sense that I wanted to not look back over the Atlantic, back to Europe, but somehow into the West towards the sunset. I moved to California, and I um, didn't really have a grand plan, although I told my parents I had a plan, but it wasn't true. And (laughs) I threw away my return ticket when I arrived in California to go back to Europe, and became a waiter in a restaurant and then ultimately a manager. And I worked for about three years 
in a restaurant as a manager and waiter to make money to go to school. And I went to college, first the University of California at Berkeley, where I started studying comparative literature. And then I transferred and then I went to a great school on the East Coast of the U.S. I went to Harvard College and then to Yale for graduate school. And I had the great advantage that I had worked for three years before going to university. So when I was in university, I was the kid who went to every class. I sat in the front, I took notes, never missed a lecture because I thought it was such an amazing thing to be in school and get an education. Um, and since it was expensive, I worked the whole time. The waiter, then I worked for a moving company uh, to finance my studies, and I was very fortunate to go to these amazing places. Uh, and probably the other thing that defines me is I was a competitive rower, so I was in a rowing team um, in Germany in high school, and then I was I rode for Harvard College, which was a very formative experience for me. I was with an amazing team of incredible people. Um, we did fairly well, um, and. I was in, a, in an eight in the boat of eight people. Clearly, that's how you compete in America. Yeah. And behind me, there were about 90 guys competing for my spot. So it was a very big rowing team, and it was super competitive and all based on your performance. And somehow that always stuck with me. So I, for many years of my life, my whole life revolved around training, practice, and competition. And the if you like the the work that you've you've delivered is around a number of different parts so there's your 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 working your university your translation your books do you do you, how do you split your time up do you have specific days for thinking do you have specific days for writing how does it work so yes i'm a teacher in the universities so i'm a professor at new york university in the middle of New York City, quite a busy place. So I teach. I was also in the administration for a long time. I was vice provost for 11 years for all the international programs, and I'm still in the administration. And I learned to write. I write every day, and so my writing somehow really doesn't get in the way, doesn't conflict with the administrative work and the teaching work. Um, but I've learned to write in very short bursts. So sometimes I write for 40 minutes or so. If I can sneak away and kind of put myself in a place where no one will bother me for even a short period of time. Mm. Um, so your question is, I don't have sort of a day when I do, okay, today's my day, I only write, today's my day, I only teach. There are days when I teach and have meetings, etc. cetera, but mostly consumed by that. But I'd like to think that some of my day, I still do what I, what I want to be doing outside of that. But it's... Um, so I didn't have a set schedule at the beginning of the week that said Tuesday is my writing day or okay. Saturday is my writing day. I, I tried to put it in when I have time. And you are, I mean, you're a teacher, so you're going to inspire people on a on a regular basis. Um, have you oh, ever, yeah. <laughs> have you ever had a mentor yourself? Is there somebody that that you've you've looked up to, whether that be a formal mentor or an informal mentor? There are probably a few people who really shape the way I approach things. Um, one of them was my the coach on my rowing team, Harry Parker. He was a very legendary rowing coach, very serious, sort of formal athletic coach. And then I was very fortunate. I studied with really incredible professors. Um, Shoshana Feldman is one of my teachers, a literary critic, 
I was able to take seminars with two other um, academics, Carol Gilligan, she's a psychologist, probably one of the path-breaking psychologists, and Catherine McKinnon, a legal theorist, who's actually the woman who invented the law that gave us protection for workplace harassment, which led to Me Too 35 years later. So they're very brilliant, unusual teachers um, who, I don't say we're very cuddly, kind of mentoring, sort mm. of meaning all the time, but they held sort of my work to the highest possible standard. So every time I have a conversation with Catherine McKinnon or with Shoshana Feldman, I'm kind of on my toes trying to express myself in a way that makes sense. And they're so attentive that every time I would say something, um, they would say, well, what did you mean by that? They would double back. Or they would say to me something important. And then I would, they would say, you didn't, you didn't listen quite carefully enough. So I had people, an athletic coach, these three academics, and and lastly, I've, I've practiced uh, Shaolin Kung Fu for a long time, and I have a very old school, traditional Chinese shifu who makes you work very hard and take yourself seriously. So I think all my mentors are people who allowed me to take my own work seriously, even when it wasn't all that good when I was younger. You know, I write things and they're not always that amazing. But they made me feel, okay, it's worth pushing harder, trying harder, working more on this. And in terms of the work that you produce, really, it looks to me as though looking at some of your work, as I've had the privilege of, I only became aware of you with your most recent book, and I... I read it last December, and we're going to come on to talk about that in detail. But it looks to me as though you base your work around subjects you're deeply passionate about. So whether that's great works of literature, specific poetry or poets or, 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 or free speech, do you, you, you have to get passionate about a subject before you can start work on it. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually cannot really... Um, say it in this way. I'm really fortunate that I found a job and a profession where I can work on things that really interest me, that I care about, that I think have greater relevance than just my personal interest. But you're absolutely right. Everything I do, I work on, I really care about greatly. So whether this great books project I'm doing right now, I have a podcast and I'm editing a series of classic works of literature, I really go into it very deep and I immerse myself and I spend an enormous amount of time preparing even for one conversation or one essay. Um, the work I've done on free speech, on, and we'll talk about it in a bit, but I've thought about this probably for some 35 years. And I think what I really care about in all these, all the things I'm doing is I'm really interested of how, and how someone can say something really new that changes the way we think about the world. How do you register a new voice, bring it into the public conversation so it stays there? So everything I do is kind of informed by this, where something struck me as new, original, unusual, important, and I wanted to sort of go deeper with that. Um, but there's probably there are a few things I think I've done in terms of my work that I didn't 
care about very deeply. So, Uli, what, what's next and when will you uncover the next passion? I'm sure it isn't quite as structured <laughs> as that, but how, because it strikes me as though, I mean, certainly some of your texts you, you will have been thinking about. You've, you've already mentioned you've been thinking on these, these issues around free speech for around 35 years. Are there other dormant passions within you which I, as a, as a casual observer and consumer of your work, are, are yet to be aware of, or are you uncovering new passions all the time? You know, um, I can't answer that because I don't know. Gonna, <laughs> I don't know what's going to surprise me, what I'm going to get interested in. I, yeah. have a, I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't think I was, I, I wasn't, preparing to write a book on free speech, which has now kind of had an impact, which I'm really grateful for. People have been interested in talk about it. I didn't plan that. I didn't plan to do a series of books, sort of the great books of literature from Frankenstein to the Scholar Letter to Heart of Darkness to rewrite these introductions. Mm. Um, how I come up with these things, I think a lot of it is I listen to people I meet. I've learned probably through the three teachers I've had, Catherine McKinnon, Carol Gillick, and Shoshana Feldman, to listen and to really listen to what people tell you. And most of my ideas, I think, come not from me sitting around, you know, looking at the clouds and hmm. <laughs> being inspired, but listening to people I meet. A lot of people I meet are not academic. Most of my friends are not in the university. Um, really random people, plus my students, and... I try to listen to them and see how they make sense of the world. And that somehow gets me to other places. So it's not really that I couldn't tell you what's next. I'm kind of bad about that. If I knew sure. what was next, I think, oh, my God, I would have to map out my next five years now. <laughs> that doesn't sound exciting. So finally, Uli, just in this section, um, what, what do you think you're known for? whether it be the work that you produce, what's, what's the commonality? Um, I think I'm deeply interested in how to express human experience that hasn't registered everywhere. That sounds very abstract. So what, I'm, what I think, what I'm known for is probably my work on poetry and on photography, um, and all of that centers around traumatic or difficult experience in this expression. I think if you ask some of my colleagues or my students, they think I'm known for doing things that don't fit together very easily. <laughs> so I'm a professor of comparative literature and English and German and photography and imaging and I teach in art history. I think that's how people should function if they're lucky. That's how we should all be teach in many different areas address different things without becoming complete dilettantes and talking about things we don't know anything about. But I think people know, they think, okay, this is what he's doing now? I didn't really anticipate that. I'm happy about that. So I'm here with Uli Bear. This is the second section of this week's Rocket Fuel. And this is the section of the chat where we talk about Uli's work and the work that he's produced. Um, we're going to start with Uli's most recent release, which is uh, called What Snowflakes Get Right. And it's a book about free speech. And I read it um, over December um, and really, really enjoyed it. 
Uli, you mentioned early on that the definition of free speech has changed over time. Bring that to life for us. Why, why do you think free speech is this movable feast? I think free speech is really at the essence of um, human experience. If you think about that, what we are, are, you know, Aristotle's a thinking animal, um, and we have a deep need to express ourselves. There are two parts to it. One of it is we want to express ourselves on our own terms. I want to tell you who I am. And secondly, I want to be understood by others. So why free speech changes is because the second part, how our speech registers, is heard by others, that is actually dependent on the society in which we live. So free speech in the kind of traditional sort of Western European understanding of the last few hundred years is really the right of individuals, citizens usually subject, to speak up against authority, against their own government, to criticize people in power. That was limited, however, to people who the government actually gave that right to. That they said, you are citizens, which means usually men in certain areas, etc., you can speak out freely without punishment. That right wasn't given to other people. So if you think about speech two, three hundred years ago, let's say when the free speech sort of doctrine took hold in Western democracies, Western countries, so from England, Europe, America, men are given the right to criticize the government. Men did not give the right to women to criticize them. Yeah. So in some ways, speech is late. That's an easy way to think about, okay, speech is not something that people hold this right to free expression, but it's also something they have to fight for that's given to them by the society or people in power. It's always a negotiation. Speech is always a negotiation between someone speaking and someone listening and being held accountable to a relationship of power, not of two equals just exchanging opinions. Okay, and that and that feeds into why you talk about the regulation of speech and why that's dangerous. It's regulation of speech is considered, and I think rightly so, a really big threat to really human well-being, not just to political sort of life. I think the the restriction of speech is a fundamental deprivation of a human right. This is the grandest terms I can come up with. It's yeah. fundamental. It's essential. It's universal. But having said that, regulation is really difficult and, as you say, rightly problematic. At the same time, regulation of speech happens all the time. The two of us are speaking right now. Now, I'm kind of waiting out. I'm trying not to interrupt you. You're trying not to interrupt me. I'm trying not to insult you. I'm not screaming at you. There are all sorts of conventions. And I'm interested in this part that the regulation of speech can be repressive, authoritarian, governmental, it can just be shutting down speech, which is how we think about usually freedom of speech. That some authority will say you cannot say this any longer, or you'll be punished for it. Then there's the other part that human beings generally agree on some baseline of respect, and I want to be understood, and I want to understand you. So those are two different things. The first one is, let's say, political, repressive, direct manifestation of power. And the other one is, what is our tacit agreement? that we will actually try to communicate and try to understand one another. That second part is really interesting because it's social, it's about norms, it's about passive things that are really spelled out. We didn't sign 
the Constitution before we started talking, the two of us. Now, what are the rules of our speech? They're just sort of assumed to be, you know, to be mutually understood. So the, the text is through the prism of, or some of it is through looking at alt-right, is, is kind of looking at, a, at some fake news. And it's funny you bring up the word Constitution. I was going to ask you a, a question around, because obviously in, here in the UK we have an unwritten constitution where you currently are in, in the States, you have a written constitution. Do you think that has any bearing on how it comes to be defined, free speech? And do you think that's important? Mm, I think it is quite important. I think in this country, in the United States, the constitution, um, the text of the constitution shapes the public debate. It doesn't totally determine it, but people refer to it as if it was handed down from the mountain on stone tablets. It's given to us by the founders of this nation, and this is the text that will say the same. Then everybody knows it gets interpreted by our courts and by Congress. So it's not these words don't enforce themselves. But the Constitution allows people to have a reference point to generally think, okay, that is what is meant by freedom of speech. So in the United States, Constitution says the government shall not abridge speech. Really meaning the government shouldn't punish people who speak out against the government. Yeah. It's supposed to empower citizens, right? If you don't have a Constitution, Americans would like to think, and I've talked about this with a lot of people, Americans think if you don't have a Constitution, how can you even function as a country? Somehow we know that with the history of Many countries and areas function without constitutions. It is completely feasible for a democracy or any other form of government. So the constitution shapes the discussion in a productive way because people refer to one phrase or an amendment or constitutional clause. In a non-productive way, when it becomes so rigid that people actually think when they cite the constitution, they think the other person knows know what they mean. So in America, a lot of times why I wrote the book was because we had really pretty serious issues on campus in universities yeah. as in many other countries, as in the UK, as in Australia and South Africa and Germany. France. So you have these big issues of really who can speak in the university, who can listen, who has to listen. Is there a type of speech that shouldn't be tolerated or allowed? And then people would say the First Amendment of the American Constitution, as if that is an answer. Yeah. I thought this is the beginning of the discussion. And <laughs> so part of my effort was to think, how do you actually move out of this kind of trap of saying the First Amendment as if the question is over? And I can tell you why this is not correct, because the American United States Supreme Court has been debating and struggling with First Amendment cases for about 100 years, and the First Amendment has been in effect since 1791 and was ratified. So for two, over 200 years, we've been grappling with the First Amendment needs. But instead of that opening up, people have used it and said, the First Amendment, shut up, put up with the First Amendment, this is the answer to your problem. And we, people realize, wow, there's a lot of space in the First Amendment for us to interpret things. And just to um, almost wind back a bit, one of the the title of the text is what snowflakes get right. The term snowflake to describe, well, would you put snowflake as an age category as a demographic? Would you just say that snowflake defines a a group in society? And 
should it be taken as a compliment? Should it be taken as an insult? How how talk to me about the term snowflake as you see it? <laughs> oh yeah, ab- absolutely. It's a it's an, um, a generational term, and it was, it's really been used quite a lot for everybody here. But I think still as um, these oversensitive young people, uh, probably Gen Z or maybe millennials in their early twenties. Who are overreacting and they're triggered easily. And they can't handle anything that's difficult, mm. and they're they just want things to be soft and easy. And if anything is slightly offensive or politically incorrect, then you just freak out. That's the idea of a snowflake. Yeah. Um, yes, it was a slur. It's an insult. Like many of those insults, it should be um, reappropriated. People should own it. And what we've seen, which I think is really interesting, that People on the very conservative political spectrum, let's say the right in America, who are really attacking these students and saying, you're overly sensitive, you should put up with some tough stuff, and why are you just so coddled and spoiled? And um, They are the ones who really bend out of shape when something doesn't go their way. So I actually say in the, in the book, you know, slightly ironically, but not entirely, the founding fathers of America were really sensitive snowflakes. They didn't want, you know, the British system to rule over them and said, you know, we are really triggered by this imposition of a foreign ruler who we no longer accept to be the monarch of our colonies. And they broke free from that. Yeah. So the original American impulse is, we don't want some authority over us. And I thought, isn't this the great snowflake moment in American <laughs> history? <laughs> so... So part of it, I'm using it hardly ironically, but not really, because the other dimension of Snowflake that I want to resurrect or revive is that the people in history who have actually made progress, I think, in expanding recognition and rights for everybody are the ones who were um, who refused to be insulted and demeaned by the political process and who said, I'm not being recognized. Let's say any kind of uh, movement of suffrage, women minorities, people who stood up for themselves and said, I should not be treated and um, disrespected in this way. They were also snowflakes. So I think actually the political process depends on people sometimes standing up and saying, I refuse to be treated in this way. So this kind of, for me, this um, caricature of people being overly sensitive is really interesting because who defines that someone is overly sensitive? What if someone is sensitive to being slighted or treated with um, you know, disdain or contempt or hatred. Uh, it depends, it's again, to go back to the question of free speech, it's a question of power. If you are told you're overly sensitive, someone else is really telling you, put up with the conditions the way they are. Put up with the status quo. Become resilient. And resilience, in many cases, that means put up with the way you're being treated. Yeah. And politics depends on someone saying, no, I'm not going to put up with it. So, those people are the snowflakes in history in a way, in a productive sense. They actually generate something new um, in the political scheme of recognition and of people living together. I want to look at some other aspects of your work. I want to turn to your your current podcast series. And I know your podcast was Think About It, and currently you're in a, you're in a great books series, if you like. I, w- I want to ask a slightly silly question, first of all, if that's all right, Uli, and that's trying to combine the two in probably a clunky way. Do you think Generation Snowflake read enough good books? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I do not think so. Um, simply because, like 
us and like me, and I'm not Generation Snowflake anymore. My kids are. Um, they don't have enough time because they are the time that they used to have where they actually would reach for a book because they're bored or they don't have anything else to do is taken up by the screen. So the phone, our little phones in our pockets are really robbing us of a lot of time. We all know that. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not changing it, which is it's just a fact. So in some ways, reading, there's probably people read not quite as much. And people need to read good books. So I do this podcast on the great books, very canonical in a way. Probably not the books maybe everybody expects. But they're all books that can show us how something, some new ideas can come into the world and become established, recognized by others, and then become part of the mainstream. So I think this reading of these great books is fundamental for that reason. Secondly, all of Generation Z or Millennials and Snowflakes, like everybody else, they have been shaped by a culture that has been shaped by great books. By which I mean that the debates in which we talk about certain things are shaped as much by literature, literary ideas, as by politics. And I'll give you a very quick example. Joseph Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness, so you write the late 1890s, we still use the metaphors of that word, of that, that short middle novel, Out of Darkness. Mm. And we know more about the questions of development aid, of developing nations, of how to deal with the post-colonial kind of fallout of these countries, which are trying to really join or be part of the global economy, but have a really hard time. And we're trying to figure out, and they're trying to figure out what is the difficulty here in terms set by literature more than politics, in terms that really hinder and um, create problems for people who are still seen in reductive or stereotyped ways. So literature has enormous power to shape cultural discourse. Your question, are the snowflakes reading enough? Not quite. <laughs> so they are kind of, their lives are overdetermined by things they don't really know yet. So I've got two more questions in this section about your work. Um, First of all, I was inspired by 2013's book, Stories from Shanghai. And I just want to ask a really broad question on that. And that is, what can the Western world, indeed the rest of the globe, learn from China? So I lived in China, I think in 2007, for about six months. And my kids were in school. They were really, they were really young, preschool. They can learn several things. First of all, they can learn that China... The way I experience it does not think of itself, maybe it has at some point, not right now, as in relation to the West and the secondary. It is the center of the world. It is over a billion people. It's going to be the largest economy, a huge country that doesn't really look always toward Europe and America to determine how it's going to structure its society and how people should live. That is a huge shock to the Western system because really a country with that kind of massive economy plus political reach can now determine the way sort of, let's say not the quarter, almost a quarter of the population of the world will live. This is really a big shift because it really was for, let's say it was the European century, the 19th century with the European countries and their colonial reach. And then it was the American century, the 20th century. We are going to live in probably the Chinese century, maybe the Chinese-Russian century. So, so first of all, we can learn of what it will mean to not be at the center, as we have been in the West, but to be 
in the periphery of the center, which will be China. And the second thing, China is a very, very, very old tradition, a very old country, a culture of learning, um, has had universities long before Europe started it, had a lot of um, different kinds of traditions. And I, when I lived there, I really was very um, taken with a way to think about society and community in somewhat different ways. I actually think some of the stereotypes people say about China are quite true. People think about their family and their community and their elders, maybe before they think about themselves. I have a lot of Chinese students and I have a lot of Chinese friends who who think about their parents or their elders in ways that most of my Western friends don't. Okay. We think I should take care of That's my parents, I have some responsibility, but for them it's a priority. Mm. That kind of respect in the culture is quite different from the Western culture. And then lastly, what can we learn? Chinese economy is doing really well, right, <laughs> so far. Yeah, sure. And it's not a capitalist country. It's, it's a socialism with Chinese characteristics. It's a, you know, not quite communism anymore. So I think it's a huge challenge for the kind of end of history rhetoric that we thought after the Cold War, market capitalism is going to be yeah. the best thing. And the second part, to go back to the free speech issue, there are no free elections the way we understand them in China, and mm. there's no freedom of expression or speech. We in the West think you cannot have a functioning society without the same protection of speech and of religion that we have. China thinks you can have a fine society. Mm. So your, your point's such a good one politically. I should explain to the listeners that we're recording kind of in the, in the shadow of the penult just before Super Tuesday in the States. So we've just had the penultimate, the final democratic debate in which Bernie Sanders has been talking about, um, Bernie Saunders has been talking about how his ideas are not that radical, that they work in other countries. And it's fascinating that you say, and I know I didn't want to put words in your mouth or necessarily draw that parallel, I've just drawn it in my head. But it's fascinating that you make that point that a political system doesn't have to be the same as the ones that we're used to. Well, I actually think what's interesting, if the only metric you use is the economy, the only metric is GDP, and are you going to you know, make more people have more part of the pie, let's say, economically speaking, then China's doing quite well. Yeah. If on an, in another metric, you can compare sort of, you know, if you're comparing uh, infant mortality, health, education, China outdoes India on every one of those metrics. It fails entirely on metrics for democracy. So those are the two big countries to compare in terms of population. So in some ways, I think it's for us to learn. I wouldn't say necessarily, well, we should all follow China's lead now. What I'm saying is China may lead, even whether we want to follow or not. So this is a big question. I mean, they're developing, they're putting much more money into research um, than any Western country right now. They're putting much more money into higher education, into um, building a science infrastructure for science and computers and AI. So in some ways, I'm just thinking China is kind of, uh, should be, it should motivate us to do more rather than to kind of infight and debate amongst ourselves. So I'm still with Uli Bear. We are discussing, we've discussed, we've got to know Uli. Um, we are, we've discussed some of his work and we're now going to go into the section of the conversation that gave this podcast its name. We're going to ask Uli for his rocket fuel, some 
actionable insights, some tangible takeouts that Uli has noticed about young audiences. In his words, perhaps, Generation Snowflake. But let's get into it. Uli, first question, what do you know about young audiences and what do you think is important to them? So I think I've been teaching um, college students for 25 years in the U.S. They are come mostly from the U.S., but they come from all over the world. And I have two teenagers at home. And at one point in my life, I was a teenager. So this is my research. Hmm. <laughs> not, I'm, not, I'm not a psychologist or a social scientist. The young people that I pay attention to care about two things. They think that diversity is a fact of life and can be an asset. They do not think it's a problem, and they think it's something to just basically incorporate into your daily life and into every part of work, politics, etc., rather than we can stop it or we should hang on to some kind of exclusionary idea of a majority that rules over other people. So diversity is a fact of life, and it can be a good thing. The second thing they care about is the environment. And as we see from Greta Thunberg, et cetera, from Fridays for Future, which is a European movement but doesn't really take root in America, in America, you have the equivalent of the climate change protesters in high school with high school students who are demanding sensible gun legislation. This push to really rethink gun legislation in America has come largely from high school students who've been victims of mass shootings, survivors of mass shootings. So there's been a, a groundswell. And what they've done, they've understood how social media works. And they've been very empowered and gained their voices you speak about free speech, they've actually been able to participate in political conversation where they had been cut out of. Um, so this generation is holding the, the other generations accountable and saying, what are you doing in terms of climate change? And what are you doing in terms of gun violence? Um, I think also there's a kind of what can be termed um, they're very um, adaptable and flexible. So when we talk about speech, so in British universities, you have a lot of controversies about offensive speech, about what can be said, what cannot be said. Same in America. The students I have are completely capable of distinguishing between the right of people to speak without government regulation or without government punishment, and at the same time saying, but... As a white kid, I'm not going to sing along to a Drake song that uses the N-word. That mm -hmm. makes no sense. And they look at you and they say, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. Why would somebody want to use that word in a classroom that doesn't really help anyone? So they have a really ready, and I don't think they are timid, easily triggered. They just say, wait, that is an idiotic way of doing it. Or you shouldn't say demeaning things about a certain group. And they, I think what they're expressing is a kind of frustration with this older generation saying, oh, no, you must use these terms, otherwise you lose your right to speech. And they're saying, why would you defend that right to speech over all these other things that can't be said in society? Sure. Uli, talk to me about attention span. You've got 25 years of, of teaching kids. You've got, as you mentioned, the, is there a, do you believe this this modern theory that, the attention span is shortening? Not really. No, I don't think so. Actually, in my, in my teaching, funnily enough, the only thing I do is I, I tell students, they, they 
can't really be on their computers or their phones in class. And I say, if you're the person who will surprise me and be the first person to really be able to, you know, do five tasks at once and hear what I'm saying while you're on your Gmail or shopping, then you'll be the first student. But I also tell them, but I don't repeat myself. <laughs> I will not tell you again what we're going to do next week. So if you missed it, and if you want to ask your classmate and make them do all the work and pay attention and then tell you afterwards, I'm sure they're happy to do it. And then they all kind of close their computers and say, mm -hmm. oh. So they're in the same space. But I don't think they have um, less attention. I don't think people, when I was in college, I don't think I was capable of listening for two hours to a lecture and get everything. And today my students are not capable of that. No, I I'd, ag I'd agree with you. I I think it's a modern but, marketing myth that, um, attention spans are getting shorter. I, I think in the same way that we have TikTok videos that last for you know, fifteen seconds, we also have podcasts that last for an hour and a half. So, and, so, I, and I think I think the one thing to say about this maybe I think something is changing a bit that this generation, the younger generation, they want engagement. And what they mean by that? So I'm publishing a series of books, these great books with new introductions, all the classics that they have to read anyways. And one of my students said to me. You know, you have to do a video, a short video and with a publisher and talk about why you like these books, who you are, how you started reading them, and just feature you. And I thought, this is a publishing house. This is August. It looks like an old library. And it has, you know, a bunch of kind of dusty people sort of rummaging through, <laughs> you know, old files. And she said, no, 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 I wouldn't really buy a book from a company where I don't understand who works there. Mm. So this engagement is a total shift. And I said to the students, do you know the difference between Penguin and Warbler Press? And I have a lot of Penguin books on my shelf, so this is not you know, disrespect. She said, nah, I don't know the difference. <laughs> so they don't understand the brands that have been so big that those brands assume the next generation is just going to pick up. There's, you know, there's a case, um, uh, Glossier, the big makeup company, huge, huge billion-dollar company came on the market a few years ago. It's competing and sometimes beating Estee Lauder and L'Oreal because they have a story behind them and they're engaging with their consumers on a direct basis. This direct engagement. There's a person who has a voice. So this, of course, now people are going to try to manufacture it. It looks authentic. But I think this engagement part is something that is different, that there was maybe attention more of a passive consumer, a passive listener. You could, they would sit there. They didn't have many other choices. Everybody knows now everybody is one click away from 50 million other entertaining choices on sure. their, phone or their computer. So the, but the engagement keeps people in. I feel what you're saying about this attention span. I feel my students, so I have, you know, 20 year olds in front of me all the time. When they get engaged in a discussion, they're totally present. Mm. And they'll be happy to talk for three hours mm. and completely there. And they're participating. You can structure it in that way. So I think people who are rightly worried about attention span, what it means, you cannot just deliver things the way you used to deliver, you know, with the equivalent of the morning paper, the news program, and one show. Yeah. That's just not an option anymore. Uli, you've covered most of my um, my touch points here on the, on the rocket fuel section. The one thing that I do want to um, uh, discuss on on Generation Snowflake is: Do you think there's anybody, whether it be politicians, whether it be an institution, whether it be brands, that talks to this generation in the wrong way? 
And then finally, I was going to ask you for one takeaway for everybody listening. The wrong way is probably to think you can use social media as a big brand and kind of assume I'm going to put lots of stuff out there with the name of my brand and people will just recognize this is the established best brand and then they'll just sort of join the club, buy into the brand. People will have no problem switching from a major brand to a tiny brand because a tiny brand engages them, as I said, speaks to them from a voice of some of the employees. So big companies have to really shift and say, we have to allow our people down the ladder, not just the CEO or president or chairman or whatever, to speak directly to consumers. That's a really key part of it. But they say, oh, I'm, I'm the person who's 24 years old and I'm just working in product design and this is what I do. And they have a social media presence that isn't totally over-regulated and just has this one voice. So corporations have to speak with more than one voice because, as I said earlier, this generation cares and value, cares about and values diversity. So if you speak with only one voice, one voice you're probably not going to address most of your consumers. So you're just going to say, I'm a you know white man in my mid early 50s. I can't address everybody. So if I only put myself out there all the time, people are going to say, eh, yeah, that can't connect to that really. So you have to speak with more than one voice, meaning employ get all the people in your company and your team empowered to actually participate in some communication. And not just there's a communications team and everybody else is sitting in the back office or in the lab or wherever or sales and doing something else. Wait, and then I forgot your second question. No, you're That's fine. Don't worry. Uh, it's one final takeaway. So we, we, we suspect our audience is made up of those working in creative, those working in media, some working in marketing, kind of at the intersection of kind of tech, media and marketing, I suppose. What from our conversation, except for buy the book, which I will urge them to do on your behalf, um, is there one takeaway for everybody listening following our discussion? Oh, absolutely. The takeaway would be you can listen to this generation and they will tell you exactly what works with them. There's no magic. They're not difficult to figure out. They share everything, as we know. They'll <laughs> tell you everything. So in some ways, it doesn't have to be an effort to say, we can't figure them out. They're so difficult. They are if you use multiple voices, they consider themselves intersectional, meaning they have different identities that work at different times, so they identify different things in different contexts. And they are willing to engage with those parts of the identities when it works for them. So in some ways, if you really pay attention to them, I think it doesn't take a lot, but that paying attention is giving up a little bit of the authority of thinking you know what you're doing. <laughs> Okay, Uli, um, where can people, if indeed you would like them to, find out more about you? Um, I know people can, can get to your podcast. Um, uh, are you across social media? Where can, where can people find out more about you? So I am on Twitter and I have, uh, so it's, uh, I think it's Uli NYC. I can send it to you. Um, so I talk about things that I care about. I'm publishing a series of books with Warbler Press that's on Instagram, these classic books, which are great. And then, um, but I put most of my info and my social media on the podcast uh, website, which is ulrichbear.com. So the whole, the whole podcast is there. 
in addition to all the regular podcast platforms. And on that website, I have all my other social media links and my books and the, the other public stuff I'm doing. You are Uli Bear, U-L-I-B-A-E-R on Twitter. So, you know, at Uli Bear. So, um, so oh, thank you. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Uli, I can't thank you enough for doing this week's Rocket Fuel. Thank you so much for being a great guest. I really love being on the show. And I have to tell you, I really love that you're actually taking this generation as seriously as they deserve to be taken because they are the only ones who are going to save us. So that was Ulrich Bear. He is a professor at New York University. He's an author. And I think you'll agree some of his thoughts around that generation, university learning, were quite fascinating. It's the last in the second series of Rocket Fuel next week. And we are going out with a bit of a bang. We've got the TV broadcast legend Andy Peters. You might know him as being a TV presenter, but actually he's been a TV executive on some of the biggest programmes of the last 30 years. So be sure to tune in for more Rocket Fuel next week. Outside of that, give us a follow at We Are Rocket HQ across social media. Give us a nice five-star review and be sure to share the podcast with anybody that likes it. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week for more Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.